The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. So good evening, everyone. Nice to be back. Sorry about the difficulties we had with the internet last Monday night. Hopefully we'll be in good hands. I'm really appreciative. So I wanted to go back to something I said last week, and I think it helps us understand um, just generally this work of understanding the Buddhist teachings about path, the spiritual path, or this path of awakening. Because we're going to naturally want to interpret everything we hear in terms of something I have to do. There's this arduous path, you know, I'm here at the bottom in the swamps and I need to get to the top of the mountain. I'm fully responsible. Every once in a while, maybe there's some skill in that perspective. But basically, the more useful perspective will be the awakening process itself is a natural process. And there are supporting causes that support that natural process of awakening, the heart shedding ignorance, shedding its habits of being tight. There's ways to support that natural shedding, releasing process. Suffering and all the ways we suffer, that's also a natural process. It isn't really correct to say, I screwed up and now I'm suffering. It is correct to say that <laughs> there was a screwing up and the lawful result of that screwing things up and acting out my anger and people hating me and now there's all this tension in my relationship with these people and I'm hurting. That is a lawful process, but it's not a personal process. So this is important because when we think about the path, these seemingly contradictory things begin to emerge. One is this understanding, you know, as we live our life and start to pay more attention, we realize, you know what? I don't think anybody's in control, myself included. And so that's one developing insight like, yeah, there's, you know, it's lawful, it's happening, life, even my own activity, you know, my own thinking, my own choices, it's all happening, but I don't, I'm not in control, and I don't think anybody's in control, and it still matters how I relate to the wildness of my life. So just because we're beginning to appreciate that this is an impersonal, natural process, life, activity, doesn't mean that it doesn't matter how the mind, how the heart is relating to this natural process. So just because things are impersonal doesn't mean there isn't cause and effect or karma. And that seemingly contradictory uh, insights, that really marks the beginning of wisdom. Like, oh, I don't think anybody's in control, I don't feel in control, and you know what, even though that seems to be true, it still seems to matter how I'm relating. Like not caring has implications, or getting tight, trying to control things, has implications. Wanting to understand more deeply how things are playing out has implications. And then this leads to that uh, part of the path that's about 
understanding what is skillful and unskillful in terms of our motivations, skillful motivations, what qualities, motivational qualities, intentional qualities, seem to lead in the direction of release, what kind of motivations and intentions seem to lead in the direction of contraction. And then whatever we're learning in that area, that those two areas we call wisdom, this view that it's impersonal and that it matters, and then the distillation of that view into what motivations are skillful and unskillful, what plants seeds for release, what motivations plant seeds or set in motion contraction, then we apply it in two general areas. The grosser area of our relationships with the world and relationships with each other, this is the whole realm of ethical conduct. In Buddhism we call that sila. That's what we've been talking about the last week and tonight. Next week and the following week, week five and six, we're going to talk about this other place we apply. So we're learning, we're distilling what's skillful and unskillful. And then we're going to apply it to this outside world, let's call it, of relationships. And then we're going to apply it to the inner world of our own ecology of our heart and mind. Same thing, the same understanding of what seems to us to be skillful, what seems to us from our observation to be unskillful, we want to operationalize it as we're relating to our partner, to our kids, to our pet, to our communities, to the wider world, and we want to integrate it, operationalize it in terms of how we were relating to our own mind, the ecology of our own heart and mind. That's what we'll go to where we'll go to next week. And so in terms of taking the three wholesome intentions and unwholesome intentions, remember the intention of renunciation, which includes qualities of contentedness and generosity. That's one Distillate, you know, when we're distilling what's helpful, we see that non-greed seems to be in the direction of release, and greed seems to be in direction in the direction of contraction. Ill will in the direction of contraction, kindness in the direction of release, compassion and valuing non-harming in the direction of release, justifying aggression not really caring if I'm causing harm, not willing, feeling the need to be sensitive about how I might be complicit in the suffering of others, other beings, that, if we observe, the Buddha says, leads to contraction. So we've got the map, we can check out what the Buddha discovered in observing his own life and see if it seems to be true in our life. And then we bring that, okay, so what does that look like in terms of my speech, my actions, and my livelihood? So this is this area of sila and the Eightfold Path. Three parts of the Eightfold Path together make that section of sila, ethical conduct. So let's talk about these. And this is really the ecology of our social world, the world of interrelatedness, how we're relating to others and how we're relating to our own life, too, to some degree. And I mentioned briefly last week, so I just want to review again, that you can think of 
this application of what we've learned as skillful and unskillful, now we're applying it to how I'm relating through my speech and actions and how I come to have some resources so I can survive and how I spend those resources. That's the livelihood piece. Then now I'm going to specifically observe, okay, what does generosity look like in terms of speech? What does stinginess look like? What does ill will look like in terms of speech? What does kindness look like? Right. So we're, we're applying these principles and integrating them so that our actions in the world, our speech in the world, how we earn our livelihood in the world, start to more and more line up with our deepest understanding that it's a natural process going on here, no one's in control, and it really matters how I understand and relate to all that. And as I distill how it matters, I see, yeah, there's some skillful ways of relating that plant seeds of release, and there are unskillful ways of relating that cause this heart to get tight and cause the hearts of others to get tight, support, suffering all around. And so let me let me integrate this more gross level of life where I'm interacting and navigating issues of power, you know, finding ways to feed my body, take care of my own, all of that, let me integrate that with these underlying principles that I've been distilling. And the way to think of this is at like three different levels. One is this level of restraint, which we often think of morality in terms of this capacity to refrain my instinct to be greedy, to take what I want, take more than what I want in case I need it later, right, to hoard, or to strike back, to cause other people harm. But, so one of the, now that we have a sense of what's skillful and unskillful, then we really want to live our life with a set of breaks. So when we're about to do something that seems to our heart to be unskillful, causing suffering for ourselves and others, we absolutely want a, a pair of breaks that, that allows us to pause. Wait a minute, I don't trust what I'm about to say. I don't trust what I'm about to do. I don't trust this way of earning a living, that it will lead to my well-being or others' well-being, that it will feel good in the end. So I'm going to pause. I'm going to restrain myself, refrain from going in that direction. So that's one aspect, one sort of moral muscle, is this capacity to pause. And um, there's a very famous story where Achan Chah, this wonderful Thai Buddhist monk and very influential in Buddhism coming here to the West over the last half a century. <clears throat> and uh, his teacher, one of his most important teachers, was a famous Thai teacher Ajahn Mun, M-U-N, and uh, considered the founder of this more recent Thai forest tradition that began in the early 1900s with Ajahn Mun and Ajahn Sao practicing out in the forests in northern Thailand and eastern Thailand. And uh, Ajahn Cha went to Ajahn Mun 
and talked to him about how he was getting a little confused by all the monastic rules. And, and at that stage in his practice, Ajahn Chah really wanted to be meticulous about all these rules around sila, around non-harming in terms of one's speech, in terms of one actions, and just following the monastic code to the nth degree. And it was uh, a little agitating for Ajahn Chah, like how to understand what was actually skillful and unskillful, or how to interpret the different rules. And one of the things Ajahn Man said to him is, you know, well, when you have doubt, don't do it. Like when it's not clear that this speech or this action or this way of earning our livelihood, when we have some doubt whether or not it's going to be skillful or unskillful, well, then don't do it. Pause until you have clarity. Oh, yeah, this is in fact, now it feels, having observed it, having reflected, having been really careful, now it seems like, yeah, I can trust this to be wholesome. So I'm going to say what I'm inclined to say or do what I'm inclined to do or earn my livelihood in the way that I'm uh, inclined to earn my livelihood. And that's uh, that's really liberating to have that power of pausing. So that way we don't need like 1,000 rules about how to speak or how to act or how to earn a living. We just need to, to be developing this moral sensitivity. And some places we're going to have some real clarity. Oh yeah, this feels really wholesome. Even then we're going to keep paying attention, right? Because... We can fool ourselves. Anybody not do something thinking you had every right to do it, it was a good thing, a wholesome thing, only to realize later that didn't feel so good. That felt off. And now I have some remorse. And now I need to make some amends to try to repair the harm that I've caused. Right? So, but that capacity to pause means we have that capacity then to keep reflecting and if it does if the clarity doesn't arise then we we don't do that and that's really like a superpower to be able to refrain and then the other way to practice morality is to find in your life positive principles and even better positive role models you know people who are earning a living in a way that's really to you seems very inspiring and you're really motivated to kind of align with what you see to be their governing principles around livelihood, around how they speak in groups, the kind of choices or actions they allow themselves to do and what they refrain from doing. So this is le less about refraining, like that, that superpower of being able to put on breaks and pause, but more about using guiding principles. Somebody you know who's just naturally very generous, or somebody you know who's just like fearlessly compassionate and just has that kind of governing orientation to take care of, to, you know, just like sense how somebody needs to be taken care of in just the right way, uses the sensitivity of their heart to say just the right thing at the right time, right way, so that person feels supported. 
and gets a little healing. So this is a different um, way to support our moral activity is to, in our own way, and this has to be a creative endeavor, is to, uh, you know, have these things that inspire us. And even though, you know, we, we may not know the Dalai Lama personally, and, but, but these, we can take responsibility for creating these archetypes. You know, so we, we have this idea of the Dalai Lama, let's just say, or this person, um, you know, a teacher or something like that. And they're going to be our, our symbol for one of these wholesome qualities that, that we really trust. And so it's really okay to find our own way to keep positive ideals, the possibility of being, becoming a more and more beautiful, kind, generous human being. How to inspire that. And to, and to equate that beauty with freedom. Like it's not just good for the world, but it's also good for our own heart. The liberation, the freedom in our, in our own heart. Like, are, are really good moral people unhappy, or are they happy? <laughs> because it's really important, like in this part of ethical conduct, where we're constructing, skillfully constructing ideals, positive ideals, that the moral, the kind of wholesome moral action equates with freedom. Because that becomes a very attractive thing for the heart, for our heart, to aspire, like to both be, contribute to the world around us, and that's part of our own liberation, and not to separate the two things. So that's another aspect of morality. One is developing a good set of breaks to be able to pause when we're uncertain what we're about to say or do is going to cause harm or not. The other is to creatively create um, ideals, positive ideals that really inspire the heart about this marriage of contributing to the well-being of others and contributing to our own liberation. And then that should just be a shining star in our mind and our heart to inspire us to kind of push the edge, right? Because we use those positive ideals to... Um, quiet the old habits of being stingy, justifying irritation and judgment and being mean, right? Because those habits don't go away. They, they slowly wear out through lack of use, but they're not going to disappear quickly. And some of us, we, we got those, those habits can have a lot of momentum. And so we need these positive ideals. We need a good set of breaks and we need these positive ideals to inspire us, to give us strength, to be able to ignore the other habits that aren't so morally helpful, right? Because they're going to be, those voices are going to be shouting sometimes, certainly mumbling in the background. You know, what about me? I want that. It's not fair. They have, you know, those sort of uh, just, yeah. And we don't want to hate those voices because that doesn't help. We want to understand, yeah, those are just habits, old motivation, old intentions arising out of greed, hatred, and delusion. 
and they're there, they're not personal, but it matters how we relate to them. And if we relate to those voices as me, well then we're going to be compelled to speak and act and earn a living driven by those voices. And things will get messy because those voices of greed, hatred, and delusion mess things up. And if you don't believe that, observe. Because the whole point is to ground what we're hearing from the Buddhist teachings and see if it lines up with our own experience. So then we become independent. It doesn't matter what the Buddha says at some point, because what matters is what our own life has taught us. And that it lines up with the Buddha, that's icing on the cake. But if it didn't line up with the Buddha, but we really saw directly, intimately in our own life that it's true, well, we should follow what we're seeing is true in our own life in terms of what leads onward to liberation and the well-being of others. And then there's one more aspect to morality. So we have having a good set of breaks, having some beautiful positive ideals, role models that inspire the heart, give us energy to not listen to the mumbling in the background of greed, anger, and delusion. And the last of these experiences where our sila, our ethical conduct, being kind, being generous, uh, really caring about how we might be complicit in causing suffering and really getting to the root of ways we might be causing harm and undoing undoing things like racism in our hearts or um, classism or sexism in our heart because we find it liberating to do this work as messy as long as it might take. Every little bit feels liberating and is good for others, right? So this last part is <clears throat> when we notice that now the habit of the mind is to be profoundly sensitive in this moral sense about how I might be causing harm. So now <clears throat> it isn't that I'm trying to be moral, I'm trying to be just, I'm trying to be fair. It's that I'm observing that those um, habits are already there. So now morality and the sensitivity is uh, something to be appreciated. It has its own momentum. And the, the image that's used in the, in the tradition is around parenting. Like when we're needing the break to be able to refrain from acting unskillfully, it's like a parent hovering around, around a toddler because the toddler could do something unskillful in any moment. Play with an electric socket, socket, you know, stick a bobby pin in an electric socket or, you know, touch something that they shouldn't touch. So the parent has to hover. We need a good set of brakes. We need to keep that kid from doing something that could cause them or others harm. And then uh, later, when the child is maybe 10 years old, hovering doesn't really work so well. But what does work is sort of walking your talk as a parent. So if you're telling the child, you know, don't eat so much sweets, and you're eating three bowls of ice cream, well, that kind of modeling isn't going to help the child so much. But, you know, in ways of how you're living your life, that really matters. The kind of integrity around your own speech, right? Then that's going to have an effect on that child at that age. And then later, 
you know, ideally a parent then when their child is whatever, 35 years old, let's say, and they've done all the work and the child has internalized a lot of wisdom and kindness, and then the parent can just sort of sit back and really have a, a lot of gratitude and appreciation for how wise and kind their child is. And this is a kind of effortless morality, that sort of simile of a parent observing their child and so appreciative about how much wisdom and kindness that child now, the adult child, has. Oh, how sweet is that? And that's its own kind of morality in those moments when we're naturally kind, naturally generous, naturally sensitive to harming others, and just really appreciating how that can happen on its own. I mentioned last week, um, and by the way, I don't know if I mentioned at the beginning of class, but uh, the talk last week was interrupted in the middle, and then about eight minutes later, uh, we got our act together and we started another live stream. So there's a second part to last week where I covered some of the specific teachings from the Buddha around wise speech. And remember, wise speech is committing to telling the truth, not using speech as a kind of weapon, slander, not using harsh speech, and not using idle speech. And so you can catch that. I think it was probably another 25 minutes at the most, um, if you haven't listened to it already, if you want. But before we break into small groups, just for the last few minutes, I just want to mention some of the more specifics around wise livelihood. So this part of sila, ethical conduct, has these three categories. Speech, because it's one of the most important, you know, as social beings, this is where we can cause harm regularly. There's so many opportunities, not just because of what we said, but also sometimes because of what we didn't say or actions in the world. And how do we get the resources to stay alive? And what do we do with those resources? And in terms of looking at where do we get the resources to live, and how do we spend those resources, use those resources, then the question is really, in doing all that, interacting with the resources we need to live, are we somehow complicit in others' suffering? Now clearly this is an area of our life that takes a lot of patience and curiosity skillful questioning, both in terms of the subtlety of how things work and also in terms of the breadth. And it in you know, this teaching on wise livelihood, it isn't there so that we judge ourselves or judge others. You know, and there are some basic principles, but even those are complicated, like not not earning a livelihood where you're dealing in poisons or weapons or, you know, butchering animals or um, you know just basically businesses or livelihoods that depend on uh, abusing or using people in ways that are harmful exploiting and oppressing other people well that's complicated in our global economy 
I mean, even being able to know the details of people who work for larger corporations and what are the practices overseas or what are the practices in this country and what are the implications. It's not so easy. But it isn't about creating another way to suffer or another way to layer on some oppressive guilt. It's really feeling this is important that we associate our moral, our practice of moral sensitivity with the freedom of liberation, the lightening of our heart, not heavy, getting our heart heavy. It's really important. And so as often as you need to, ask yourself, is, how, is this, you know, how is this landing for me? Is there a way that this deepening, widening moral sensitivity can be felt and understood as a liberation? As something that the more I do it, the more I want to do it. The more morally sensitive I become, the more morally sensitive I want to become because it has the flavor of liberation. It's good for me and it's good for the world. And this is like in that second part where we're looking for role models. That's the quality we want to see in somebody. Not that somebody is morally sensitive but really tight about it. Who wants that as a role model? You know, you want somebody who's like really morally sensitive and is delighting in it and feeling really energized by it and is coming alive in their life and is happy, <laughs> right? This is what we want. And, and it's really okay not to believe that this is actually possible. But it isn't okay not to check it out. You have to check it out so that in your own life and in your own relationships with other people, just make this correlation. People who are authentically morally sensitive, they care about non-harming. Do you know people? Have you seen their lives lighten up or not? This is something we want to be interested in. And then, of course, in terms of our own life, as I've become, as you've become more morally sensitive about what is causing harm, supporting the harm, the oppressing of other people and other creatures, not just human beings, of course. Um, how does that affect me? You know, like just being sensitive about the food that we buy. And does that get oppressive or does that start to feel like a cause of lightness and buoyancy in my life? I have more energy as I become more sensitive about what I buy, what I choose not to buy. This is a poem from uh, Nikki Giovanni, who is one of Shelley's oh, wonderful inspirations, uh, poet. And uh, the title of the poem is Allowable, Allowables. I killed a spider, not a murderous brown recluse, nor even a black widow. And if the truth were told, this was only a small sort of papery spider who should have run when I picked up the book, but she didn't, and she scared me, and I smashed her. I don't think I'm allowed to kill something because I'm frightened.
And then a quote from Bhikkhu Bodhi. He was uh, the author of one of the articles I, I believe I sent last week to you all. He writes, Real peace is not simply the absence of violent conflict, but a state of harmony. Harmony between people, harmony between humanity and nature, and harmony within ourselves. So in a minute we'll break into small groups. And what I was thinking about for tonight is just to talk about these, uh, one possibility at least, and of course whatever is coming up from your own study would be appropriate in your small groups. Um, but in particular you might want to talk about how that superpower of being able to pause when there's some ambiguity about what I'm about to say or do, being skillful or not, and just that capacity to pause and to be interested and to feel into the motivation to be to better sense whether it's skillful or unskillful. That would be a great thing to share some examples in your small group of that moral power of restraint. And then the second is that positive ideal. Who has been those role models, moral role models for you that really gave you energy to become a better person around non-harming. And uh, another interesting place to possibly share in your small groups is, and remember if you're not going to do it tonight in our small groups, you can do it on your own with a friend in the next few days, is like places in your life where you noticed yourself wanting to block your moral sensitivity, like I don't really want to care whether this is skillful or not. I just want to do it. Now, I know those places. <laughs> and so it's really useful in these kind of Dharma groups to share how that's a real thing. We're like, we don't want to be morally sensitive human beings. We want to act out. We want to gossip, gossip for example. And then the last thing is those places where you felt that effortless moral sensitivity, that effortless skillfulness, all the habits lined up, the wholesome habits, and you really felt like that parent watching the child who has grown up into such a kind and wise human being, and you totally trust them to figure their way out in life. Not that they won't make mistakes, but that the momentum of their habits are really trustworthy, and you can just appreciate them. Yeah, and the same way appreciating the, our momentum of our own wisdom and compassion and kindness. So I'm wishing everybody a good week of practice. Next week we start with that section on samadhi, which is right effort, right mindfulness, and right concentration. And I look forward to seeing everybody next Monday night. Take care, everyone. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.